Section five of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two The Utilitarian Optimism of John Stuart Mill. Part two. And yet all these difficulties put together seem never to have daunted Mill. Distrustful of God, censorious of men, open eyed to the dangers that beset democracy and to the economic obstacles to progress, he never seriously doubted the advent of a bright future for mankind and for his country. Carlyle once called him mystic. Here, said that great prophet, as he laid down an early article of Mill's, here is a new mystic. Strange title, surely, for this man who set such store upon clear ideas. Yet, in a sense, the epithet is not misplaced for it was not upon the England of his own day that Mill's eyes were fixed and his hopes fed. It was upon a far-off future, upon a changed and a better world, in the sure coming of which he believed in the face of every difficulty, with a buoyant faith such as many a visionary might envy. This being so, it is time to ask from what sources this faith in the future drew its strength and vitality. The first step to an answer is found in Mill's general attitude as a political thinker, and for this the only adequate word is radicalism. For though one might not say that the condition of England question tortured Mill as it did Charles Kingsley, or that it awakened in him the Siwa indignatio of Carlyle or Ruskin, he was nonetheless deeply dissatisfied with the status quo and profoundly convinced that something radical had to be done. Proof abounds. For Mill, we must remember, was nurtured by reformers to be a reformer. This was the educational experiment, which on the testimony of Miss Fox, Bentham, and the elder Mill, tried upon John. These two set themselves to train him almost from his cradle to carry on the radical tradition and he himself welcomed the mission with enthusiasm. We have his own record that in his fifteenth year he embraced Benthamism as a religion. Footnote. Autobiography, page 67. I now had opinions, a creed, a doctrine, a philosophy, in one, among the best senses of the word, a religion. End footnote. Nor did he ever flag in the cause of reform, he openly avowed his sympathy with uncontented characters. I want to excite your passions, he said comparatively late in life at a land reform meeting. The passion of the many is needed to conquer the self-interest of the few. So runs another avowal. He was beyond all rivalry the literary leader of the radicalism of his day, and when he had enriched the literature of political and social reform by his writings, he entered Parliament and worked there for the cause as Radical Member for Westminster. And though as the years went on he broke with Benthamism, he never broke nor wished to break with Radicalism. Yet his Radicalism had its peculiarities. Like Benthamite Radicalism, it was philosophical. It rested on ideas. But unlike Benthamite Radicalism, one of the ideas it rested on was the belief in social continuity. For, of course, historic continuity had been no concern of Bentham. 
with his utilitarian hatchet bentham had cut history in two into the ages before benthamism which sat in darkness and the ages after benthamism which were to see a great light mill knew better he had read comte he had perused michelet and the french historians above all he had made a study of coleridge and interchanged ideas with the coleridgeans maurice and sterling his openness of mind his readiness to learn from other minds did the rest he made the discovery to put the point in pregnant words of his own drawn from coleridge that revolutions are sudden to the unthinking only it was a pestilent heresy in the eyes of the orthodox benthamites nor from the commendable consideration for men to whom he owed much did he venture to avow it in the great essay on coleridge till bentham and his father had passed away but it marks his repudiation of those new beginnings which in ignorant disregard of the past are only too apt to issue in reactionary endings we might call this conservatism and doubtless we may find in it one reason why mill had little in him of the revolutionist even his extremist suggestion the appropriation by the state of the unearned increment was far removed from confiscation yet conservatism would be a misnomer here for the real significance of this wider outlook is not that it shook his radicalism but that it helped more perhaps than any other single influence to give it its decisively and even passionately individualistic character for as mill read history it told him that the old dispensation of status under which the situation of man is the arbiter of his duties had gone not to come again and that the new dispensation in which by dint of his own free choice and self-assertion man becomes the arbiter of his situation had come there was a time for the morality of submission and obedience a time also for the morality of chivalry and protection of the weak by the strong but these days as he tells us in certain pregnant pages of the subjection of women had passed or were passing history itself had turned that earlier page and what remained was that every man and every woman free enlightened self-protective self-assertive should hold their own fate and fortunes in their own hands mill's position here is singularly interesting it has often been remarked that though he lived on till darwinism was in the air he yet held himself surprisingly aloof from the application of evolutionary ideas to politics he was shy of using in this connection the biological categories organism adaptation differentiation integration with which spencer has made the reading world familiar it is indeed the very point upon which spencer claims characteristically to be superior to him yet mill was not blind to the facts he had learned to do justice to history he had accepted the idea of historic continuity witness the essay on coleridge no one he there writes and it would be easy to prop the weighty words by others to the same effect can calculate what struggles which the cause of improvement has yet to undergo might have been spared if the philosophers of the eighteenth century 
had done anything like justice to the past. Nor is it enough to see in passages like this merely the usual lesson, that radicalism must temper its reforms by reckoning with the force of circumstances. For they carry in them the further claim so explicitly expressed in the pages of the subjection of women, that the whole current of historical development makes steadily for that dispensation of individual free choice and government by consent, which from the days of Vane and the men of the commonwealth had been the radical tradition. This does not mean, of course, that it was in history that Mill found the final justification of this central principle in his creed. To the last, he was a utilitarian, and the eye of the utilitarian is primarily on the future, not on the past, on ends, and not on origins. And therefore, when in the liberty he comes to state the case for his individualism, his central point is to prove that individuality is the essence of social well-being. But it would be an injustice to the breadth and sanity of his creed to fail to recognize that he was not minded to leave the appeal to history to be the monopoly of conservatives, nor slow to claim, as neither Payne nor Bentham so much as cared to claim, that history was on the side of radicalism. For the individualistic radicalism of Mill was neither an arrogant dogma, like the exploded radicalism of natural rights, nor was it a narrow and bald utilitarianism like that of Bentham. It was a creed fed on a wider outlook, and for that very reason held with a deeper conviction as the years went on. But it is gratuitous to multiply evidence here. The masterly essay on Coleridge, a landmark in Mill's mental growth, is alone sufficient proof that its writer is to be classed not with the radicals of revolution who flouted history, but with the radicals of evolution who respect and even write history. It is, however, just here that the most formidable of his critics, both in economics and politics, have met him. With a true instinct they have assailed what has seemed to them this fanatical faith in the free choice of individuals. For there are persons, they say, and who can deny it, who are not capable of free choice that is of the slightest value. Children are not, nor savages. And if not these, what then, as Fitzjames Stephen bluntly puts it, of the ordinary peasant or the petty shopkeeper? The question, it is true, is not respectful to the peasant and the shopkeeper. But is it more disrespectful than certain remarks, we need not again repeat them, which had fallen from Mill himself? and now it would seem these harsh judgments have come home to roost. It cannot be denied that Mill has invited this assault. No writer has ever had more confident hopes of what liberty, that is, individual free choice, can do for men. No writer stirs deeper doubts as to whether men are fit for liberty. No writer urges more eloquently that all will be well if men are left to do as they please none awakens more lively misgivings as to what it may please them to do. We think of men as they are to be, and the heavens open. We recall what they are, and darkness descends. This brings us to the problem which every student of Mill must do his best to solve. Mill's optimism is unwavering. 
his individualism is final but how if individuals be as he paints them can individualism justify optimism the answer is not easy but at least the clouds begin to lift when we turn to his political psychology and briefly compare his analysis of political motive with that of bentham and james mill these two men so diverse in temperament so alike in creed had confided to mill the arc of utilitarianism and radicalism they had planted in his mind beyond dislodgment the religion that the supreme political end is the greatest happiness of the greatest number but to this gospel of political benevolence there was another and a less glowing side for however benevolent bentham and the elder mill had been in the end they set before mankind and be it added in the apostolic pertinacity with which they worked for it neither of them ever expected of mankind that sacrifice which they themselves practised their words are here beyond mistaking by those two powerful minds the ideal of a greatest happiness sufficient to stagger imagination in its comprehensiveness was tied to a doctrine of the inherent selfishness of the instruments the men and women by whom alone under a democratic dispensation it could be realized there is no more glaring paradox in political literature as we read of the end it is altruism triumphant the scene changes and we find bentham's declaration that men will not so much as lift a little finger for their neighbours save in so far as it makes for their own interest and james mill's rasping laugh at the simpletons who reckon upon unselfish motives it follows that the ultimate expectations of both cannot travel beyond the hope that by operating upon selfish human nature by the external sanctions more especially of law public opinion and religion public service may be won from private selfishness it is not within our scope to enter upon an examination of this psychology our concern must be narrowly limited to two points the one is that it plants athwart the path of human progress a fatal barrier evil day for the service of the public ill omen for human progress if public spirit to become practical must shrivel to self-interest the second point is that this is precisely the conclusion to which j s mill in defiance of the masterly influences of his teachers was led for it was one of the greatest efforts in his life to free the benthamite philosophy of reform from the benthamite theory of motive upon this there can be no manner of doubt for though the elder mill laboured perhaps more strenuously than ever father has laboured with son to make the younger mill an orthodox benthamite it is to his credit that however undesignedly he made him more with his benthamism the son developed another thing that power of learning from other minds which was the one possession in which with the modesty of greatness he claimed to be superior to other men the inevitable result followed his mind burst the narrow limits of sectarian benthamism receptive where his teachers were impervious he listened to other voices to the apologists of christian ethics like maurice and sterling to the advocates of the religion of humanity even to the gospel of sacrifice as this stands written in sardo Risardus, with the result 
that he came to read life and experience so differently from his masters in benthamism as to declare that human nature has it in it to pursue the public good even if need be at total sacrifice of personal happiness End of section five.